passage today is Acts chapter 3. We're going to look at the first several verses of that chapter together in just a moment. But over the last several weeks, we have been in the book of Acts. We have been with the disciples as Jesus commissioned them and promised the Holy Spirit. We were at the upper room at Pentecost when the promised Spirit came and filled the disciples. We were with Peter on the streets as he preached the first sermon, a sermon that included no less than 26 references to the Old Testament, reminding us of the importance of the whole Bible when it comes to giving witness to the gospel. And then we learned that 3,000 people as a result of that sermon and the work of the Holy Spirit became believers. And last week we saw how many of them spent every day in reverent worship, great fellowship, committed studying under the teaching of the disciples, and the breaking of the bread together. So let's read what happened next in Acts chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Would you all stand as we acknowledge that this is God's holy word? Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they had daily at the temple, at the gate that is called Beautiful Gate, had been to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking leaping praising God and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him while he clung to Peter and John all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we learned from it. We are privileged to be able to sit and hear, and read, and worship together with the the body of Christ. So we thank you for that. We pray that you would not allow your word to return void, but to truly accomplish your purpose in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the story that Luke chooses to share with us in chapter 3, chosen from all of the many experiences of the first church, is Peter's and John's encounter with a crippled beggar. And verse 1 gives us the setting. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And the ninth hour 
refers to the ninth hour from the rising of the sun, which would be around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The early church knew that its first mission was to those in Jerusalem and Judea. And so Peter and John would regularly go to the Jewish times of prayer so that they could give witness to the gospel. And the ninth hour was the busiest time. And there was also a beggar that was there. We know that as verse 2 shares that he was lame from birth and he had to be carried and he was laid daily at the gate of the temple that was called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those that were entering. So you can picture the scene. Peter and John are moving along with the flow of the crowd, moving from the court of the Gentiles, which was the large court, inward, perhaps towards the inner courts, because that's what the beautiful gate separated. And providentially, they encounter this man who is begging. And he's been carried everywhere he goes. Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that from the time of Jesus, there was this gate known as the beautiful gate that was 75 feet high and 60 feet wide overlaid with Corinthian bronze. And you can think of those dimensions, but you probably just can't visualize them well until I say that 75 feet is as tall as a six-story building and 60 feet wide is wider than most of your homes. So that's how tall the gate was. Almost probably as wide as this room and twice at least as tall is how big that gate was, covered with Corinthian bronze. Josephus writes that it was a work of art that exceeded every other gate in existence, even those who were plated in silver and gold. And I can imagine that to be true, just the sheer size of, of something like that, as tall as a building, plated in bronze, shining if the light struck it just right, had to have taken away everyone's breath. That's why it was nicknamed the beautiful gate. It took 20 men to open it. So it's a compelling sight because you've got this contrast, right? You've got such a huge, beautiful work of art. and You've got this, this small beggar by comparison, this impotent man here in the backdrop of such an extravagant surrounding. It's a perfect place, though, to beg because not only was this in the way of traffic of people going into worship, but being struck by that contrast between beauty and here, the, the poverty of the beggar, it had to have been a place where he profited well from receiving alms. And now came the divine encounter. If you look at verses 3 and a few following that, though they had not even come to the gate, the beggar catches sight of Peter and John. He begins his normal request, masters of a few things, please. And Peter responded, look at us. And the beggar turns expectantly, expecting money, right? But then Peter says, silver and gold we don't have. But that's what he was expecting. Was are they mocking him? But then came the immortal words that they spoke. But what we do have, what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. 
He had never heard such words before, never would again. At least not having the impact that they'd had on him that day. And Luke is very careful to make sure that we understand the total impact of what happened. Because verse 7 and 8 tell us that he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up he stood and began to walk. Now he knew he could not walk. But Peter's grabbing him by the hand, pulling him to his feet. Get up. You're healed. And I've often wondered about the miracles. We we don't often talk about them as much, maybe together in the sense that, well, when we see them depicted, let's say, on a television program like The Chosen or something like that, and we, we see someone like this man who's never walked suddenly standing firm on feet and even leaping, learning balance, our skeptical minds want to say, well, wait a second. We, we know people have gone to physical therapy after they've broken a leg and they have not, you know, they've walked their entire life except for this time that they've just broken their leg and they've been off of it for months. And how long does it take, right, to, to get back that strength again and, and that just even the balance of walking again, especially if you've not been walking for a long time. They need crutches. They need assistance. And, and we listen and we, we experience and we then apply that to these words that we read. So how did this man stand and walk and leap and praise God? Well, there are some interesting details that are more obvious in the Greek in this passage. For example, this is the only place in Scripture where the words for feet and ankle bones, a very technical word, are used. It's as if Luke, who we know to be a physician, who's a doctor, has specifically used these technical words to describe what's happening, probably because he knows as well how unlikely this would normally be to the skeptical mind. He's saying the ankle bones themselves were strengthened in order to be able to stand. And somehow, and we have to include this in the account, even though it isn't there specifically, somehow part of that miracle was to give this man stability, give this man strength, and against all normal expectation and experience, enabled him to walk. You see, our skepticism as we read this should make us even more wondered, right? Even more amazed, at what has taken place. Well, in Matthew we read, on one Sabbath Jesus told a man with a withered hand to reach out his hand. And as he did, his hand was healed before everyone's eyes. In another section we learn how Jesus, in full view of the people, healed a man suffering from leprosy. Those Those are some very visible things, right? A withered hand, leprosy affecting the skin of this man. Instantly clean. Similarly, this was an instant, full-orbed miracle. And this man went through that beautiful gate for the first time in his life. And verse 8 tells us he began hopping around the courtyard and praising the Lord. Verses 9 through 11 say, And all the people saw him walking and praising God, recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. 
And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And I like the fact that it says that he continued to cling to Peter and John. And it's the same word used in other passages to mean this kind of grip that won't let a person go. That It's used in other passages where a guard is grabbing a criminal, right? Won't let them go. It's like a death grip. Why was the man clinging so tightly? Well, probably because, as the scripture says, the people recognized him as the one who had been begging for years. And they were coming to him. Would, would they think that he had conned them? That's a possible explanation. What's this, what's this person who's been begging doing suddenly able to walk? Or perhaps he needed a steadying hand as he l- continued to learn to walk for the first time. I don't know what it is, but... At any rate, Peter says, men of Israel, why are you wondering at this? Why are you staring at us as if we made this man walk? Did you see the words that they use? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Emphasis after emphasis that it is not us doing this work. It is God. Glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And you can see what he says. You know, so two weeks ago when we looked at the sermon in chapter 2 that Peter gave, he does the same thing during the Feast of Pentecost. The people did not expect a sermon. They are wondering at, at this event that takes place, and, Paul, and Peter in that particular instance uses that opportunity to share the gospel. And he does it in a penetrating way. He does that in a convicting way. You crucified the Lord Jesus. And he says it again. You see, as people take notice of the work of the Holy Spirit, it gives Peter the opportunity to point them to Christ. And we are reminded that it is faith in the name of Jesus Christ that brings power to the church. Brings the spiritually dead to life, and the world takes notice. Has anyone ever come to you along the line of, I've noticed that there's something different about you. I've noticed, I've watched your family. You guys respond to things differently. What do you say in return? Well, you know, we're Christians. We go to church. We have some different values. Or in the example of Peter, do you take the opportunity to talk about the life-transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's not about you and your values and various things. It's about the fact that God brought you to life. So God intends that his miraculous works will bring him glory and authenticate your message. That's why Peter asked, why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we made him walk? He points to Jesus. Now with respect to signs and wonders... The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the Jews wanted to see signs and wonders. They wanted a miracle to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And people want the same thing today. They want something miraculous to back up our claims that God exists and that he sent his son Jesus Christ. They want to know that what we say is true and they want it proven by miracles. And there are many today that still would say that There are miracles happening all over. And so a question is, do miracles still happen? 
And it's been a long time since I addressed that question. I do want to take a moment to, to address it here because it's appropriate in Acts chapter 3. So let me note something important. Christians are not the only ones claiming miracles. Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, witch doctors in the African jungles, other cultists having their share of miracles also are claiming the same thing. And so I think it's safe to say that God is not performing miracles for those heretical religions. Because Jesus is the only way to the Father and because forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ is our only way to stand eternally in the presence of God, there is no possibility that God is working the miraculous through non-Christians. Many of these experiences then are either being mistaken for the miraculous or may even be demonic. So part of the problem with discussions about miracles is that the words miracle and sign and wonder all mean different things to different people. But really, all three are translating the same Greek words of dunamis, which means power, and semion, which means sign. And those are, those are, there's nothing special about those two words in the Greek. And so we have to look beyond those words to the context to understand how are they being used? What, what is a miracle? What's a sign? What's a wonder? Because there are hundreds of occurrences of those words in the Bible. So I've tried to distill things down into an overall understanding, but first I want us to look at a few of these passages. First is Exodus 4, verse 30, which reads, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and he did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. So here Aaron performed several miracles, which God had told him to perform. And as a result, the people bowed their heads and they worshipped. So out of the desert comes middle-aged man claiming to be a redeemer for the Israelites who would lead them out of Egypt, and what would convince them? Would it be persuasive words, perhaps, miracles? In this case, yes, miracles. The people worshiped God when Aaron authenticated Moses' message with miraculous powers. Now, if we were to go through the remainder of the passages that deal with miracles, we would find time and again that these do not just occur at a whim Children, what kind of powers would you like? Would you like the ability to change a stick into a snake? That would be pretty neat. Make water come out of a rock? Wouldn't you be tempted to impress your friends and use those abilities when you were thirsty? Aaron and Moses and others, they didn't use miracles for their own interests and needs. These miracles always served a purpose. In Exodus, miracles confirmed Aaron's authority. That was also true of the prophets. It's true of Moses, part of the Red Sea, Elijah, who came and called down fire from heaven. As a result, they were proven to be God's representatives. And that was true also of Jesus more than any other person who performed miracles. John 20 says, now Jesus did many other signs, again, a synonymous word, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that, you see the purpose there? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why did John share about the miracles that Jesus performed? And ultimately, why did Jesus perform them? So that his readers, so that the people that were observing what he did would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they might have life in his name. They were to believe in the authority of the one who had performed the miracle. Now that's the same thing that happened in the early church. The apostles, their representatives, were commissioned by Jesus with the power to cast out demons, with the power to heal. And when we read in Acts 3 that Peter heals this lame man, the first thing we hear him say is, don't look at me. Don't look at me, look at God. He's the one who did this. We're told in Acts 15 that a multitude was silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul because of the miracles that they performed. Why did they have to, why did they need to be affirmed and authenticated? It's because those who perform the signs and wonders profess to be speaking the word of God. If you look at Hebrews 2, where it says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first declared by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, attesting which refers to the miracles. God also bearing witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So you have these men who are, who are giving testimony to the gospel And they are trying to prove that the gospel comes from Christ and it was accompanied in that particular case by wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing we saw happening in the Old Testament times. Aaron had to prove to the Israelite elders that he spoke the genuine words of God. When Peter, Paul, and Philip or any other witness went into Judea or Samaria or Galatia or whatever other Gentile city... They were just one voice among a crowd of pagans demanding the attention of the Jews and the Gentiles. They professed, though, to speak the words of God that demanded people to listen. And so God bore witness to the truth of their message through miracles. And all of that leads me, I said, I tried to define it for you, the term miracle. Well, we've seen these things. We've seen that miracles confirm the authority of the one performing the miracle, that that authority was the authority to speak as a representative of Jesus Christ. Additionally, the message that is confirmed is about the redemptive purposes of God. We saw what Peter uses that moment to do. He points people to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And as a result, the people worship. Aaron's message was that God would redeem Egypt. Elijah's message was that God would redeem Israel or alternatively discipline Israel. Both of those pointed to future redemption in Christ. Jesus' message was that God would purchase redemption through his work on the cross. What was Peter's message in Acts chapter 3? You crucified Jesus and are dead in your sins. Repent and trust in the saving work of Christ. Every case, the message that establishes the need for the miracle is the redemption of God and points forward and back to the work of Christ on the cross. What do so many of today's miracle workers 
proclaim as their message in the midst of a healing service, for example. Many are not talking about sin and the need for redemption. Most of the time, they're talking about God's plan for wealth and success if the people will just have faith in God's desire for their prosperity. Now, friends, don't get me wrong. I still, I do believe that God still does amazing things. People do recover from life-threatening diseases. Someone narrowly misses an accident. If Wendy was diagnosed with a life-threatening disease, wouldn't we all pray that God's will would be done with regard to that illness? And if she recovered, would we not all attribute that to God's work? But here's my point. Many might be tempted to call her recovery a miracle. It certainly would be within the providence of God. It certainly would be by his will and purpose and and even by his power because all things occur according to that. Would it be a miracle? Not in the biblical sense of the term. Remember that a miracle is a mighty work meant to confirm the authority of the one performing the miracle. That authority is the authority to speak as a representative of God and the message being spoken is a witness to the redemptive purposes of God and the result is that people worship him. Am I getting too technical? Perhaps a little, but the truth is that the failure to be more careful with our terms and the way we say things has led to a division in the church today. Would I be bothered if you called the birth of your grandson a miracle or that you called your survival of of an accident a miracle? No, I wouldn't be bothered by that. We all have a tendency to call miraculous anything that is beyond our ability to explain. We should, though, consider that a lack of precision in so many things does, over the course of time, lead to division and separation and disagreement and lack of understanding and unsound doctrine. It can lead us to accept the claims of others who profess to be miracle workers. The ancient Babylonians, Greeks, others, all proclaimed the ability to perform miracles and supernatural healings in order to convince people to follow them and to submit to their claims. Other religions and cults use claims to miracles and visions and healings and uh, wonders to attest that their message is the authentic truth If each claim is true, then God is constantly affirming contradictory messages about himself. And that cannot be. There are many revivals throughout the United States where faith healers will tell people to lay aside crutches or recover from disease. And those miracles are often used to authenticate the message and authority of what? The divine healers. And that's good on the first part of the definition But when we examine their message, what often do we find? One time I did read through 20 pages of a transcript from an actual healing service. I found 19 and a half pages of personal stories and a half a page of quotations from passages in the Bible about miracles, but there was nothing about Christ, nothing about the cross, nothing about perfecting the afflictions of Christ in our bodies that might bring about the ministry of reconciliation, To others, nothing about dying to self, nothing about enduring persecution, nothing about growing to be more like Jesus, at least in that particular event. And it's important that we are clear on the purpose of signs and wonders and miracles in the Bible. The message of Christ 
was not that God desires that everyone should be well. At least not in the physical sense. Let me say that again. The message of Christ was not that God desires that everyone should be well, at least in the physical sense. God desires that his people should be made spiritually well. And friends, here's the hard part. The result of that spiritual wellness is often short-term physical suffering. The way to life is through the cross. It's a walk along the narrow, agonizing path that few are willing to walk. And friends, the purpose of miracles is to confirm and authenticate that message. That's the message of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. There came a point in Jesus' ministry when he simply said that the final sign, at least from him personally, would be the sign of Jonah. And what he meant by that was that he would be three days in the tomb and would rise from the dead. Now, Jesus performed many, many miracles. Why? You should know by now to confirm his authority and the message and lead people to worship God. At some point, though, there were enough miracles. How many do we need? God's intent was not just to hold revivals and heal everyone's physical maladies. That healing will come in eternity with the resurrected body. There was a specific window of a few years that was used in which Jesus worked mighty acts to confirm his authority. But sadly, most didn't care about his authority or his message. They just wanted to see or experience something wonderful. It's like the ten lepers that are healed. Jesus later says, is only one thankful? Right? Again, I'm not saying that God can't or doesn't do amazing things today. But I do see a specific purpose of miracles tied to authenticating the word of God, particularly in establishing the church where the gospel has not yet reached. I don't see ongoing tent revivals that simply elevate the power of the pocketbook of the one doing the miracles. And because of this, I would caution us against seeking signs and wonders. For listen to what Matthew 24, Jesus says, false Christs and false prophets will arise and what? Perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, I have warned you of what will happen. Revelation 16, 14, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. Satan himself, Jesus says, works Signs and wonders in an effort to lead astray even the church. God still works in human history. Friends, God still works. He answers prayer. You can pray to be healed, and God will answer, but He will answer yes or no. And it will be an answer that has already been determined to fulfill His purposes. What you shouldn't do is act as if you wield some force that will be unleashed by your whim. And yet many people have that kind of pretense. They say, be healed as if the Holy Spirit 
were some impersonal power that they held in their hands as if God intended that every single one of the 500 people who came to there that evening expecting to see a miracle should be healed. Three times Paul prayed that a thorn would be revealed from his flesh. You may remember that passage. We don't know what that thorn was. Maybe it was his health. Maybe it was a person. What we do know is that it bothered Paul enough that he prayed three times that God would remove it from him. But each time God said no. Why? Paul says it was in order to keep him from becoming proud. So there are times when disease and infirmity and other types of obstacles serve a valid purpose in our lives, friends. Does God work through his ministering servants, his angels? Yes. There are times when God protects believers or accomplishes something that we don't understand. God does work today. And much of what God does is beyond our understanding and prediction But I do want to challenge us, at least for us in America, God has already established his church. He has confirmed his message. He has blessed his people for centuries. And it is our duty to receive and obey and to trust that God will continue to lead and guide and protect and do things according to his will and timing, not ours. Now, I'll tell you one thing as we step away from this whole idea of the miraculous of the passage, because I don't want us to lose the passage as a whole. There is, there's a part of this where as we look at this man who's begging and we look at the response to what Peter does, which is really what God does in his life, we see how he responds. I want you to hold that thought in your mind for a second. And I want you to know that in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is talking about us. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the word he uses is takas in Greek, which is the same word for beggar. Blessed are those who are beggars. Who, as they compare themselves, not to one another, but to the perfect holiness of God and their spiritual depravity, they realize they are beggars. And as a result, they are broken in spirit. They mourn over their sin and God says, to them is given freedom. To them is given an inheritance. And I want you to put those two concepts together. The physical beggar sitting at the base of the beautiful gate, being freed from his infirmities. The spiritual beggar being given a recognition of their sin, being freed from his or her infirmity. Peter says, grabs his hand, pulls him up, and says, rise. You're healed. Walk. And what does he do? He goes leaping and shouting and praising God. God says, rise. Get up. Walk in the Spirit. What do we do? Well, here's what we often do. I used to live in a city, Folsom. And many of you know that one of the high security state prisons is there in Folsom. 
And it used to be a concern of mine, what if somebody escapes from Folsom? Because the, the entrance to Folsom Prison was right across the street from the, you know, around the block from us, right? I thought the first place they would go would be our house. And my parents used to say, no, we've actually had, we originally had that same concern when we were moving here, but they've told us that this neighborhood is the safest place in the entire area with regard to a prison break. Why? Because an escaped prisoner, he doesn't go hang out in the courtyard and kind of wave at everybody, I'm free. He doesn't go into the lobby area with the people that are coming in to visit the inmates and shake hands and say, you've come to a wonderful place. He doesn't hang around and talk with the guards. What does he do? He runs. He flees as far from there as possible. It was the safest neighborhood in the area because nobody in their right mind would escape from prison and go around a half a block and go to one of those houses, right? They would go cities away. They would get as far away as they could. That is the principle of the scriptures of what happens when we who are prisoners of sin, enslaved in death, are set free and told to walk. We are expected to run from the flesh, run from that slavery. What do we often do? We often hang out at the prison. And friends, I want to compare those two and say, here's the beggar, physically a beggar, healed, and we see his response, and I want us to look at our own lives and say, are we responding in the same way? God has done the miraculous in our life. Yeah, maybe we want this external sign and wonder and miracle, but God has done the most miraculous of all. He's taken a person who was dead in sin, quickened them to life, made them desire to turn in faith to him, given them new life, new desires, new strength, a new heart, and the ability to will and to do his good pleasure. He's given every promise that is yes in Jesus Christ. He's given us inheritance, which is of the earth, and all of God's kingdom, join inheritance with Jesus Christ, and he says simply, get up, walk. And our response should be to run and jump and leap and worship God. So I present that to you, friends, as a lesson to us to draw out of this story. Let us be admiring and awestruck at what God has done in us, and let us respond in the same way. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your good word to us. I thank you for this passage here in Acts chapter 3. We see, we see yet again the miraculous work that Peter performs, in, and we want to remember that this is not just about Peter having power. This was about your apostles being given power to authenticate a message that at its heart was foolishness to the world. They preached the message of Jesus Christ on the cross. They preached the message of us dead in our sin. The miracle was just the support for that. And the result in tr the face of true miraculous power was a worshiping people, was conversion of the lost to new life. And so, I, Lord, I pray that we would, to see things that way, but in particular, we would be motivated by what we see in the response of the beggar, that we would 
ourselves be leaping, shouting for joy, worshiping for the fact that you have done the most miraculous thing of all. You have changed our hearts. Lord, may we never stop to being awestruck at what you've done in us and in other people. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.